Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe. It is the leading dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. At least that's what my brother tells me. Today, we have got a very special guest with us to talk all things G.I. Joe comics. But before we bring him on, let's introduce my co-host. It's a real American, Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark. And hello, listeners. So, Tim, we've got an extra special guest today. That guest is Michael Kelly. He's the VP Global Publishing for Hasbro. He is the acting global franchise lead for G.I. Joe. He started in 2006 as a senior publishing manager and has been at Hasbro for 16 years, including 11 years at the helm of Hasbro's global publishing department. I hope that's all accurate. Hello, Michael. That sounds about right. Hello, Tim. Hello, Mark. It's good to be on the show. Hello, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for for joining us. My pleasure. Excellent. So before we get all into the detail of your role at Hasbro and and, uh, where we are today with G.I. Joe, maybe we just start with a young Michael Kelly. So what was your first exposure to G.I. Joe uh, so I'm going to date myself here, but um, my first exposure to G.I. Joe goes back to the 70s. So I do remember the 12-inch adventure team. Um, mm. But um, but when, by the time I was really, you know, getting into it and collecting some of the toys, etc., I was um, I was around 10 years old in 1982, right when um, right when Real American Hero de- debuted. So for me, um, you know, I remember having friends whose older brothers played with uh, the 12 inch Joes. So I always remember seeing them around and, and messing around with them. But um, for me, Real American Hero is really my uh, intro to G.I. Joe. Were you discovering the toys first, the comic book, the TV animation? Yeah. So for me, it was the toys primarily. Um, and then a bit of the show too. Um, I actually did not read comics as a kid, believe it or not. So um, I'm, I was late to that party. Um, but certainly I've, I've uh, made an effort to catch up in the convening years. Since we are so comic-centric, uh, we will drill in here. When, when did you get into comics and, and when did you become aware of the monthly G.I. Joe series? No, I think I was always aware of it, um, you know, because obviously I would see it uh, on shelves and, in, you know, back then you go into the uh, the pharmacy or the drugstore and uh, there'd, there'd be the racks, the spinner racks with uh, with comics. But, um, you know, certainly the idea that it was, uh, you know, written by Larry Hama and, you know, the, really the backstory of that, I, I certainly did not know that until, until much later. But, um, you know, I, I really started getting involved with comics quite late. Um, it was really my Hasbro job um, that got me involved. And um, so right around 2006, um, I'd certainly dabbled with a few things here and there prior to that, but um, never really got into the genre um, until until I was professionally in the in that business. We, we are not looking to embarrass anyone who comes to comics late. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we just appreciate sort of a, an accurate timeline because everyone's connection with and journey alongside G.I. Joe is different. 
mm-hmm. there's no there's no too late to get into any <laughs> you know, any of this. You know, I, I when when I'm on this podcast, I feel free to talk about comics and comics and comics, and then I go to a convention where the focus is much more on toys. And a little sheepishly, I I don't want to tell people that I tend not to buy the toys these days. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, you know, being the uh, the head of Hasbro Publishing and. Uh, you know, and obviously running the comic book business since 2008, um, you know, I think there is a level of of looking in the mirror and saying, wow, how'd you miss this for so many years? But, um, you know, I, I like to think that in some ways it um, it gives me a little bit of a benefit because I'm I'm on the outside looking in. I'm experiencing these things in some ways for the first time. And and so for me, it's a uh, discovering Joe Transformers all you know all the comic books that I kind of missed out on as a kid it's uh it's been really exciting to get into them now with I guess with the perspective of an adult if you will so you know I I think that there's something to be said for for having been there from the start but uh, to be sure but um I think there's also uh you know I don't bring any I guess what I would say is I don't bring any pre- existing notions or determinations of what Joe needs to be or what it should be. And, you know, I think probably some people would say, oh, that's not a good thing. But um, from my perspective, I think it, it allows me to be more open-minded in terms of, of when creators bring projects and say, you know, I'd, we'd, we'd like to do this and we'd like to do that. And, you know, I think it just gives me the ability to allow that a bit more and, and provide that kind of flexibility that, you know, possibly somebody who started with it right from the beginning might just have a harder time or, or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is a little bit of, of people we know or someone who's speaking right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. You know, I, I always love engaging with, with, with the real fans who have been with it from the start. And, you know, I, I, I always like to make sure that I'm listening and, and taking their perspective into, into mind. Um, and then also, also, you know, a big part of my job is, of course, making sure that G.I. Joe is still relevant and part of our, our culture 30, 40 years from now. Right. When when sadly, you know, some of you know, some of us on this call may not really be <laughs> around for much longer, but I want to make sure that that legacy gets passed on to a next generation. Right. So it's a it's always that balance of honoring the 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 original fans while also being sure that we're welcoming new people into into G.I. Joe. And you meant you I saw in an un, another interview that you sort of mentioned the, that you were a fan of, of some of the G.I. Joe creator driven works that have been released recently, like Sierra Muerte from Michelle Fife and Transformers versus G.I. Joe from Tom Scioli, which yeah. are sort of very, outside of the kind of the tradition of, of the of the kind of the more adventurous style of a, a particular artistic style. And it's much more of a of a, a, an individual creator's stamp on, on the property. Yeah, I, I guess what I would say is that for me, what always intrigued me with the comic medium, particularly um, and, and actually drove me to to want to take this on when I when I started at Hasbro, because my first job at Hasbro was not involved with comics. Um, you know, my experience with comics, although not particularly in depth, was always the fascination with the interpretation and the creativity of, of different artists and writers and the mm-hmm. idea that there's there's a broader latitude within comic books that allow, uh, I think, a personal viewpoint to be explored um, than, than other 
other um, genres or or media, if you will. So you know, obviously, a, a movie or a TV show is going to particularly on a on a property like uh, a GI Joe or a Transformers, where you know there's a there's a commercial element to it. Um, you know, there there needs to be a consistency and there needs to be a I guess uniformity of vision, if you will, that uh, that drives a particular story. Whereas I feel comic books allow unbridled creativity, and mm. so what I really enjoy is is that opportunity to say, okay, well, we we do have the mainline comic book story, if you will, whether it's Larry Hama or whatever the um, the main book is that's going along, uh, that's going to kind of cleave to that more brand centric concept of the characters. But the opportunity to say, let's do something really experimental. Let's do something that is um, that just might really surprise people. Um, and, and, you know, obviously it's not for everybody. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going to fall in between. Um, but, you know, it's, I think it's important to always press those boundaries and say, what, what's a different vision of, of this story? What's a different vision of these characters? And, you know, how far can we can we explore those limitations? Um, so for me, it's just, you know, it's really it is really that ability to take somebody else's vision and empower them to tell a story that that they want to tell um, and, and then just see how it falls and see how people react to it and, you know, build upon the successes and, and maybe, you know, rethink some of the, the things that don't work out as well. So this is a this is a, a good point and worth hovering over for a moment. Uh, when there is a G.I. Joe film or TV show, I think it can be hard for everyone, me included, to imagine what that show or movie would have been if it had been, say, similar, but a different writer, director, art director. With a comic book, I think when it's written and drawn by one of these sort of writer, artists, cartoonists, auteurs, I think because they tend to be such singular, quote, visions, uh, I think it is sort of easier to see it as such a particular take on G.I. Joe and to sort of extrapolate how it might be if that particular ingredient of that writer-artist wasn't there. And, you know, a a G.I. Joe film, thousands of hands make that. A G.I. Joe show, hundreds or thousands of hands make that. And a comic book might be as few as 11 people. And maybe I'm so in comics, you know, I can look at a comic and say, I know who drew that, or I've got a couple of guesses. And with a film, you know, if someone made a G.I. Joe film and I didn't see any credits and they showed it to me, I would not be able to guess who had written it and directed it. Yeah. So, so I sort of had a slight deviation there away from uh, talking about a young Michael Kelly, but um, uh, at some point, that that uh, young Michael Kelly became a slightly older Michael Kelly and started looking for for jobs. So, what was the what was the route that uh, that you took that brought you to Hasbro? Uh, so that's that's a great and sort of interesting meandering story. To be honest, <laughs> we, li- we like meandering story. This is not a short podcast necessarily. Um, so I was uh, I was always. Um, very engaged in reading as a child. Uh, that was like one of my main uh, pastimes. And so when it was time to go off to university, I I was an English major, studied literature, um, and, you know, was really immersed in that, but also sort of realizing that it could be difficult to come out with any um, 
real profession um, other than, you know, people, every time you're an English major, um, people, the first question people ask is, are you, are you going to be a teacher, right? And of course, for me, I, I really didn't have interest in being a teacher. I, I just was more interested in, in language and storytelling and, and the, uh, that art form, if you will. So, um, and I'm, I'm not, I think I, I recognized early on that there's a, there's a difference between being a writer and being a storyteller and a writer, I certainly am not, but a storyteller I am. And, um, so, you know, I think that that was really a good background. And as I started going through, uh, you know, getting towards graduation, realizing that I think, you know, a career in the book business is what I would really enjoy doing. So, um, so out of school, I, I started working at a bookstore um, at a Barnes and Noble. Worked my way through that for a while, and then landed my first job at a children's book publisher outside of Boston, and worked there for a few years, and moved over to a company that actually specialized more in things like self-help books and business books, things like that. So not quite as uh, creative and. And I think rewarding is the children's book side of things. And and after being with that company for about six years, I realized it was time for a change. And um, believe it or not, I started interviewing at two very different places at the same time. Uh, one of which was Hasbro um, for a for the senior manager job on the publishing team, and the other was with the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, <laughs> so um, so a little bit different uh, um, dynamics there. And I actually got pretty far with both um, and got to the point where I had to make a decision which one I was going to do. And, um, you know, I think there's just there was an interest still for me to pursue literature and, and, and publishing. And so it was, uh, you know, I was leaning towards that anyway. Um, and then, you know, when you find out what the CIA pays these people who risk their lives, um, you have a lot more respect for for what they do. Um, so I, I feel, felt like I probably should, uh, should go with a direction that um, would help me support a family eventually um, and, and also not, you know, put myself at risk every day. So Hasbro it was, um, and I ended up uh, really at the beginning, it was, um, at that time, Hasbro Publishing was, was really sort of, I don't want to say an afterthought necessarily, but it was a very small part of the Hasbro organization you know, revenues were very small. There were only three people on the team, um, me being one of them, you know, and it was, it was really sort of looking at storytelling for brands in a, you know, kind of a simplistic way, I guess it was, you know, if it was a TV show, you took the TV show and you adapted it into a kid's book. If it was, uh, you know, there were, there were, obviously there were still comics, there were comics going on at that time, but, um, you know, it was sort of a, this is the story you tell. This is the story that Hasbro will approve, and and that's the be all end of it. And you know, so it was just uh, it was it was a business that was certainly not neglected, but I think underdeveloped at that time. Um, and I think there just wasn't really a strong realization of of what the opportunity potentially could be. And so about a couple you know a couple of years later, two thousand eight. Um, the opportunity to to manage the comic book business opened up, and I I jumped at that, and you know really at that point started to look as we you know as we just spoke about look to the creators to drive the story, look to outside ideas of you know what do you think this could look like and where could the story go, um, and really being uh, more collaborative and more open to to new and different ideas and. You know, and and that spread across the entire the business, right? So we 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 still do adaptations of of kids shows into books, but 
we now do a lot of original storytelling. In fact, I would say at this point across all our brands and our different publishing formats, about 60% of what we do is original storytelling as opposed to adapt adaptations of, um, of entertainment. And, and that really has changed things dramatically, right? So we went from that small three-person team. Now, now it's a team of 14. Um, we have offices in London, Paris, Shanghai, and Mexico City, as well as Rhode Island and New York. And, you know, we're driving about, we're doing about a thousand titles per year. So, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of how I got to it. It was a bit of a meandering path. And I never, you know, it was never a goal per se to say, like, I need to figure out how to go work for Hasbro. But the opportunity arose and, you know, it's been almost 17 years now. Wow. Michael. And Oh, go for it, Mark. I, I was I was going to say that uh, sort of alluding to those uh, early days, and what was interesting is that given you've been now at Hasbro uh, a long time, you were you were there during the switch from Devil's Due uh, Publishing to IDW. That is, was around about two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. Yep. All of these years on, we're sort of in a similar position of of seeing a new era from moving from IDW to a, a new publisher. Yes. How how involved were you? In, in the comics during that period and what can you sort of tell us about what that kind of activity w was like of, of sort of moving to the to the new publisher and you sort of mentioning starting new ideas and and I can definitely as you were saying that sort of it was uh, resonating with me about what a I guess fertile period the the sort of the launch of it ID of G.I. Joe at IDW was. Yeah so I I literally took over the comic business right after my predecessor had made the decision to move to IDW. Um, so it was sort of that transition period where Devil's Due was still the licensee, but but we knew that we were moving on to IDW. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of this transition period of making sure that we, we wrapped things up as best as we could um, with Devil's Due and then launched with IDW in as strong a way as possible. So I personally had very little interaction with the Devil's Due team because it was really more just a handover, if you will, of, you know, this mm -hmm. is we're winding you down and we're winding IDW up. So um, so that's really where I came in. And so, you know, my if you look at my career in terms of the comic book business, it is it is very much tied to the ID, the, the IDW run uh, because it was right around then. So it was, it was 2008. And I took over, um, IDW launched uh, a little, I think, towards the end of that year. Uh, that was the same time that Andy Schmidt um, was working at IDW, if you um, recall him. And, you know, he had just come on to basically be the Hasbro guy, right? The IDW's um, liaison and, and editor mm -hmm. over the, over the um, Hasbro book. So he and I worked closely together in those early months, him being brand new to um, IDW and me being, you know, couple of years in at Hasbro, but brand new to the comic book business. So yeah, that's, uh, that, that lines up. Hmm. Tim, did you have a, a particular question that I, that I interrupted? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I might be jumping a little ahead, but maybe this will jump us ahead. Michael, you and I have spoken before and in describing your job, and maybe it was sort of more of that era, this is some years ago, uh, I recall you described yourself something like an editor, that there might be other words in your job title, but that you were sort of like the Hasbro editor or 
the person at Hasbro who was running interference and helping to decide story direction with your partners. And I found that word, editor, like, oh, Michael Kelly's sort of the Hasbro editor. Because I know what a vice president is, but sometimes I don't think I actually know what a vice president is. And there are many different kinds of vice presidents, you know, uh, big, big businesses and banks have them, schools have them. And sometimes it seems like companies have so many of them that, you know, uh, governments have them. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, can you talk about that word, editor? Because you have talked about writer and storyteller. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So obviously, you know, and I think you make a good point, like what is a vice president? And, you know, I think that the biggest evolution of my job from the time when I was, well, my title at that time officially was senior manager of publishing to vice president, obviously, you know, vice president, at least at Hasbro, implies that you are overseeing a team and, you know, more of a division as opposed to um, a a part of a business, if you will. So, you know, I think a a lot of what my job has evolved into now is, is managing that team of of 15 people that I just mentioned. um, And, you know, ensuring that the strategy is set, things of that nature. But, um, you know, those early days, and, and to an extent, still, I mean, I'm still, I'm not as involved, just for time, you know, reasons of time um, management. I'm not as involved on that editorial process as I, as I was. But, um, you know, in those early days, certainly, I was reading every single manuscript. I was looking at every panel of pencils that were coming through. And, um, you know, with, uh, particularly on the, on the art side, uh, working closely with an art director to, to make adjustments in that nature. So, um, and then really just kind of guiding and crafting the the language of the story and ensuring that we were heading in the right direction, um, nudging things where necessary. You know, you said running interference. Certainly there's a good amount of that, particularly in those early days. There was a lot of, um, I don't, I wouldn't say hesitancy, but there was a lot of maybe nervousness or a bit of anxiety on sort of the corporate side of Hasbro in terms of, you know, uh, is it okay to tell these kinds of stories? Should we push the envelope this far? So, you know, a lot of my job was was advocating in a sense on behalf of the creative teams and, and trying to push through some of the more, um, you know, I guess um, I'm drawing a blank on the word that I want right now, but I guess daring, maybe daring. Yeah, daring risky. Yeah. The, you know, like some of those more um, out, out of the, uh, out of left field types of, of, of stories that, um, that Hasbro just wasn't accustomed to at that point. Right. I mean, it just, it wasn't necessarily that they didn't want to tell them, but just that they hadn't and that it was, uh, you know, it was new ground to be, to work, to work through. So, um, but you know, on that editorial side, definitely, you know, literally sitting down and reading through manuscripts and, and, you know, here and there adjusting, a phrase or a scene or, um, you know, giving some art direction in terms of how I visualized something playing out in in the panels. You know, I think that that was a big part of it. Um, You know, to give you an example, uh, when we were working on the Cobra miniseries, which has now been collected as the last laugh, the Chuckles story, Mm -hmm. the original concept came through and the, the big bad guy, if you will, was Major Blood. And, you know, reading through the initial concepts of that story, you know, it was it was a solid story. But, um, you know, I, I kept coming back to Major Blood and thinking, I just think, you know, I don't know that this is the right character for this story. And, you know, so basically went to Andy and, and the writer, Mike Costa, and said, you know, what if we use 
the twins, Tomax and Zaymot, you know, and, and use them in a way that Chuckles doesn't know that they're actually two people. So it's like that kind of a, you know, that kind of an idea. And then, you know, both of them agreed and Mike ran with it. And, you know, his work on that series is some of the best I've ever worked on, uh, without a doubt. But, um, you know, that's sort of that level of, of editorial, you know, not a, I guess what I would say, Tim, and you'd, you'd be familiar with this, like, not so much a line editor, but a content editor, editor, right? Like the, the kind of more of a, a guiding hand, um, helping and assisting where necessary, nudging where necessary. And, you know, to an extent, I still do read a fair amount of the manuscripts that come in. I, I don't have the time, unfortunately, in my uh, job these days to read everything. But, you know, I have a team that I rely on to do that. So And and the, the Cobra miniseries, uh, and then the second Cobra miniseries, and then the ongoing series, you would count that as one of those more or perhaps most daring stories in comics that Hasbro hadn't been used to up until then. Yes, definitely. Um, I had a lot of internal conversations uh, in the early days of those, of that story to, to get people comfortable with, with that idea. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I've always been really impressed by how supportive Hasbro was um, because easily they, you know, some of the, the higher ranking people, particularly on the communication side, public relations, you know, those areas that have to worry about things like, you know, what, what kind of reaction might pop up in the media. Um, and, you know, rightly so they, they were very supportive, you know, it took some conversations and it took a little bit of explaining what we were trying to achieve and, and what the benefit of it would be for the, for the brand and for Hasbro overall. But, um, you know, once they got it, they, they were a hundred percent supportive. So yeah, and but yes, Mar- Mark was... <laughs> and I are Mark and I are both fans of that series. So you are you are explaining to the converted. <laughs> good, good. And I guess you know that experiment and that daring sort of born out because you you've been left with uh, the legacy of the story and it's been collected in a very handsome hardcover. Mm-hmm. And and I guess if if any of the bigwigs in 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 Hasbro or or sort of film partners want to say you know, what, what can, what can be achieved with, with GI Joe, which is, you know, for maybe a, for a more mature audience or outside of, you know, what, what the stereotype of the cartoon is, you can, you can now point at that story and say, look, this is something that is, is possible that you can do in the, the GI Joe world. Yes. To our listeners who have maybe not started that story or only got through the last laugh, the story continues for another two years afterwards and the word Cobra is always in the title. So for example, the Cobra files after Chuckles, uh, after his story is wrapped up, the October guard shows up, other characters show up. It continues to be great. And it does have a, uh, a significant sort of epilogue. So I, that gets my thumbs up listeners. <laughs> Good. What, what does your broader role sort of involve in, in encompass? And I, I th- in my research, I think I saw that you quoted you were quoted as saying that you travel like almost a third of uh, third of the year. Yeah, I mean, obviously <laughs> that was pre-pandemic. Um, things have changed for all of us, um, and I certainly am not traveling at this stage, even even in 2022. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I think in 23 we'll probably still be fairly scaled back when it comes to that. But but yes, at the at the height, um, and certainly. Th- 2015 through 2019 um 
easily on the road 100 days a year. Um, And that was everything from visiting my team in the various offices, making sure they, you know, had the support that they needed, were, uh, you know, were implementing the strategy in a way that made sense for them and for their markets, um, you know, making adjustments as necessary. So a good amount of face time with them in the various countries. Um, Trade shows, obviously. So, you know, in addition to something like San Diego Comic-Con, Bologna Book Fair, which is usually in the spring in Italy, is the largest children's book, international children's book show uh, of the year of the calendar. So, you know, that's a that's a big one that we we always attend and we have a a big booth. And it's it's an exciting one, too, because that is strictly publishing. So it's it's really the only trade show that Hasbro exhibits at that is 100 percent about the book business. So trade shows as well. And then, um, you know, and then, of course, visiting some of our bigger partners. So whether it's, you know, some of our publishers of children's books or novels in New York City, um, you know, our comic book partners are mostly out on the West Coast in California. But then, you know, because it's a global business now, uh, we have massive publishers in Poland and the UK and Shanghai, Beijing. So all of those all of those really big partners um, that are putting out, you know, 40, 50 books a year for us, you know, they they get a visit just to make sure that they understand that Hasbro supports them, that we appreciate their business. And, um, you know, that's that's part of the job of, of the head of a, of a division is to go out there and, and, and meet with those companies, CEOs and presidents and, you know, make sure that they understand that we are as committed to them as they are to us. So, you know, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of on the road. It's a lot of dinners. It's a lot of <laughs> things of that nature. But, um, you know, I, I've always really enjoyed that aspect of the job, meeting people face to face, you know, learning about the different cultures. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing how different storytelling is in different parts of the world and, and how you have to adjust things. And I think that's also been a bit of the secret of Hasbro's success in publishing over the years is that, you know, we're not forcing the exportation of, of U.S. or U.K. titles to the rest of the world. We're encouraging our partners in, in various places to create their own stories. And, and again, coming back to that idea of original storytelling, it's not just about expanding the brand and taking risks. It's also, you know, a Chinese child has a different expectation of storytelling than an American one does. And, you know, the, the only way to really achieve that in a, in a meaningful way is to have a local publisher and local creators work on those, um, knowing, knowing the culture, um, firsthand from having lived it their whole lives. So, you know, it's a, it's a lot of that as well. So, um, that's, you know, that's, that's the travel aspect. I, I will say that there is a point where, um, 100 days gets a bit much. Um, so <laughs> I certainly didn't want to go to zero, which is what the pandemic did to us. But uh, it would have been nice, I think, to uh, I, I, if as things start to open up again, I, I'd love to keep it more in sort of the 60 to 70 range, <laughs> be home a little bit more. It, uh, can we put two of these uh, interests of yours together? So if you you didn't use the V word, but I, I was suspecting that you were a voracious reader as a kid. All these trips, if you're not behind the wheel driving a rental car, you're on a plane or a train or at an airport or at a train station. Are you are you reading a ton? Uh, that's that's a great question. So it depends on the scenario. Um, I do read a good bit depending on the length of a flight. But believe it or not, this might sound a little bit strange, but because 
because my life is so just insanely hectic, like I'm sure it is for you guys and for everybody, especially these days, but I value the time, particularly in an airplane, like if I'm flying to the West Coast, to do absolutely nothing and just think. So like not read, not watch a movie, maybe look out the window if I'm, you know, if I've got access to it. But, you know, for the most part, for me, that actual travel time is the time when I am undisturbed. Um, You know, there's really nobody asking me for something. The email's shut off. The phone doesn't work. It's an ability for me to really get introspective and, and think about where we are in terms of, you know, whether it's storytelling, whether it's, you know, which brand needs some help, which, which story might be struggling, which things are really successful. So yeah, I, I, it's probably looks like I'm just staring at the wall, but um, (laughs) believe it or not, I spend a, a lot of time on, on planes and trains just thinking. That's, that's surprising and also not surprising. And a writer said to me once when he's writing, he's sitting at the computer just staring and it might look like he's not writing because he's not typing, but he's thinking. Yeah. Uh, and that was Larry Hama. Um, <laughs> and, and lots of other writers. Hama didn't invent that. I think um, I think I remember an interview with uh, the writer Charles Saul. I think he was sa- said something along the lines of his most productive writing time is when he's going for a jog, um, you know, no distractions, nothing, you know, no family around asking questions, no other, you know, co-workers, no no distractions on the, on the screen in front of him. It's just him, his mind, you know, ability to, to, you know, think about uh, his, his next story uh, while he's got that, that space to, to be out there uh, running. Actually, that's a segue. I saw, I saw on, on one of your interview profile pictures, it looked like, um, uh, Michael, it looked like you were be- taking part in um, Tough Mudder. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that is one of my great passions. Tell us who don't know what that is, what that is. So Tough Mudder is a, uh, it's a obstacle course um, race, if you will, although race maybe isn't quite the right word. I guess challenge is the right word. So Tough Mudder is, um, it was actually originally designed based on the training regimen of the British SAS. Um, so it's, it's meant to incorporate not only physical challenges, but um, mental and emotional challenges as well as you go through the process. But it's usually about a 10 to 12 mile course, which you know you either can run or jog or walk if you need to, um, and sometimes you do. Um, and then interspersed in that is anything from, you know, something would be physical, like climbing over barriers or um, going over cargo nets, things of that nature. Um, in terms of psychological, you might have to, you know, crawl through a dark tube or something like that that goes underground and maybe fills up with water. Um, so like a lot of things that are really just kind of challenging you to face your limitations physically and mentally while you're out on the course. But I think what I find most rewarding about it and what makes it different from some of the other obstacle course events that are out there is that Tough Mudder is all about teamwork and camaraderie. So there are there are literally obstacles out there that you cannot complete by yourself. You need to have somebody help you. And um, and part of the, the culture around it is that everybody helps everybody else. Even if you've never met, met the person in your life, you, you're always going to turn around. You're going to give them a hand. You're going to give them a boost. 
Um, you're going to encourage them. And, um, you know, it's not timed. So that's what I said. You know, I misspoke when I said it's a race. It's a, it's more of a challenge and event because it's not timed. Nobody comes in first, second or last. And, you know, I think it's just it's it's this kind of amazing way to go out and just face yourself and and push yourself to your limits um, and, and, and in a way that's really fun and rewarding for me. Um, and, you know, the, I've just got over the years, I've had some really amazing teammates and, and just some great um, experiences just with uh, with the Tough Mudder community all around. Is this something you do annually? Does this come to where you live? Do you travel to do it? Yeah, so um, it it's a bit. It, originally, it was more local. Um, so uh, I would always have to travel because um, usually it's it's set more in sort of mountainous terrain. So the, in the New England area, it usually would be Vermont or New Hampshire or one once up in Maine. But um, over the years, uh, my team has slowly whittled down to just one other person. Um, <laughs> but um, but she and I are very dedicated, and we. Um, we have now traveled to Toronto for one. Um, we went last year. We actually went to uh, the Tough Mudder in Scotland, um, or this year, I should say. Uh, it was uh, just back in um, June, and uh, yeah, we usually do. We do a minimum of one of a year. We tr- we tried to do two a year, um, and we were getting that pretty well in hand until the pandemic hit, and then of course everything got disrupted. So uh, we're back down to one per year, but, um, it's, it's definitely the highlight of, of my year. That's off to you. for Sure. It sounds like, um, in terms of, in terms of giving you quiet time to think, it's probably not the event. It sounds that uh, full on. <laughs> yeah. You're not thinking about anything when you jump into a, a 30 yard dumpster filled with ice water. I guess. <laughs> wow. Um, oh dear. So this is, this is a little bit of a, this is a left turn. I'm looking at the Hasbro portfolio of brands, and I see that My Little Pony has stayed with IDW. Mm-hmm. G.I. Joe and Transformers are, are going elsewhere. Yep. Boom Studios has Magic the Gathering and uh, Power Rangers. Yep. Is this unusual that a, that a company would split its IP between not different publishing partners like someone who does children's books and then one that does comic books, but say three comics publishers? Um, I don't really know, to be honest, what other companies do or how they approach it. Um, I don't think it's that curious, to be honest. Um, what I would say is that you know, when I started out and we, we were working with IDW, it was it was a it was a natural growth, I guess, if you will, right? So they started out, they just had Transformers. Then they added Joe. A little bit later, came on with uh, My Little Pony and Dungeons and Dragons, which is the other one that they also still will remain publishing is Dungeons uh-huh. and Dragons. And then, of course, we we expanded that out, and they've done some really interesting things with like Clue, um, which is, are some of my favorites. Um, Gem and the Holograms, I think they did an amazing job with Gem. And then, of course, we we rolled into the the um the hasbro universe with um rom micronauts uh, mask etc so you know it, it sort of evolved in that way and then um when hasbro acquired power rangers from saban um that deal came with the with the boom studios relationship already intact and so it was really just a matter of of taking that business over and and starting to manage that and i think you know, I guess what I would say is that it for me it's it's really about making sure that our our brands are with the 
the teams that are are going to really be pushing the envelope and being really creative consistently. And uh, you know, I don't think as much about where they are as as who I think is going to do the best job for the next say three to five years. And then you know, and I think there is something to be said about having a bit of diversification, if you will, in terms of you know, especially in these days of upheaval and uh, and just challenging business models with the comic book industry in, in general, it's, you know, to have all of your eggs in one basket, so to speak, is is risky, I think, you know, so I, for me, it's, it's, it's also a little bit of a just a strategic safekeeping, I guess, to have have a few different options and have various talented teams working on our books, um, so that if anything, unfortunately, were to happen to one of them, you know, we still we still are not, you know, we're not suddenly overnight out of business. Now, you know, I mean, I don't obviously think that's going to happen to any of our comic book partners. But, you know, I have seen it in my career where you're working with a strong partner, and then something, you know, a switch almost flips and and they're out of business before you know it. Um, And that can be really damaging if you've got a lot of your business tied up with with one company. Yeah, I'm I'm actually going to go back in time and answer my own question because of course around 1987, 1988, Marvel had GI Joe and Transformers, DC had Cops. Right. <laughs> wow, that uh, was good. <laughs> which which I always forget because I don't think of Cops because it's not a Marvel book and if I'm thinking licensing in the 80s, I'm usually thinking of Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Disney splits its licenses across many different, even comics publishers. Yeah. Mark, let me hand the mic back to you. Okay. So I see your name in the uh, in the front of uh, the comic book every month. It says it says special thanks. Uh, this is from issue three hundred, I think. Special thanks to Hasbro, Hasbro's Ed Lane, uh, Tyler Rayo, Michael Kelly for their invaluable assistance. Um, so what are you being thanked for there? What What is Hasbro's role in the production of a typical monthly book? Uh, so we're very, very involved. So particularly the three, those three names. So obviously myself, but also uh, Ed Lane is our, is the art director for global publishing. So he is, uh, and, uh, you know, amazingly does this entire job by himself, um, which when I, you know, I mentioned we do about a thousand books a year. That's uh, that's all Ed Lane looking at the art, making sure he's a, he's a, you know, he's a trained artist um, by trade and skill. And his job is really looking at every panel, every cover, um, every visual representation of our characters and ensuring that mm. they are, that they're on brand and accurate. Now, you know, I mean, like I said before, we do allow broad latitude of, of interpretation within comics, but but there are certain aspects that we need to adhere to, right? Because it's there; they are the brand tenants, right? So you know, Optimus Prime has certain colors. Um, you know, GI Joe characters have to look a certain way. My Little Pony characters have their own, you know, their colors and their personalities that need to be that need to be reflected within within the visual experience. So um, Ed Lane does all of that, which is amazing. And then Taylor is. Um, She's our product development specialist um, and manager. Um, so she oversees the the team that. Uh, manages every piece of material that comes through for approval. She makes sure that it gets to all the people internally, myself included, Ed, also brand team members, publicity. Everybody who needs to see something and approve it um, or comment on it gets to see it. Um, and it's she and her team that that make sure that happens. And also provides 
because because she and her team have been with us for long enough that they know the brands in and out as well. So, um, you know, like I said, they're they're it's simply not possible at this point for me to read every single manuscript, but I know that Taylor and her team are, are looking at them. I know that they're making sure that, that the story that's being told is the agreed upon story and, you know, that nothing's kind of getting out of, out of parameter or, you know, God forbid once in a while something sneaks through that maybe is inappropriate or, you know, some salty language that uh, we, we wouldn't want <laughs> in a book because we, you know, we still are a family company at the end of the day, regardless. So, um, so those are, you know, those are the three of us, but um, you know, yeah, I would say at this point, you know, my job because of, of where I am is, is a bit more on the upfront side. So as opposed to the day to day. So, you know, if we're going to launch a new story arc or a new book, I'm very involved in the, in the upfront of that, um, crafting that story, um, approving the, the concepts and the ideas and, um, and then moving that through to the point where it goes into production. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't know if, if readers and fans really know just how involved we are, but, um, I doubt anyone really has a clue to be honest. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is funny. Cause you know, like sometimes I'll, I'll read on the, the fan sites and the fan boards and the, they'll be like, Oh, you know, I, IDW did this and I can't believe it or so-and-so did that and it's like yeah well that might have been my decision sorry guys. (laughs) (laughs) I I get the impression that particularly with the G.I. Joe book that it's got a drumbeat of um, monthly as you know when the pandemic isn't getting in the way of printing and and that kind of thing but it's it's you know it's got that that monthly drumbeat of, of production and it's you know the script pencils inks colors letters you know approval and out and somewhere in amongst all of that it's being reviewed by somebody from from hasbro and i get the impression that because the timelines are so tight to to getting this thing produced and and out it probably can't sit on your desks for too very long uh for for reviewing i guess that you have to be on it to be able to look at this thing as it comes in and and get, get it reviewed get your comments out very quickly yeah, it, it can, it honestly can get insane, Mark. Um, you know, the, um, we contractually, we, we are always granted 10 days of review, of review uh-huh. time. So once something comes in, we, we have 10 days under our contracts with our various licensees and publishers that we have to look, but with a comic book, you can't do that, right? Obviously you can't do that. So, you know, we, we make every effort to flip things for our comic book partners within three days. It doesn't always work out, but, um, but that's our goal. So, so yeah, uh, you know, and when you think about how many books we're doing on the comic book side uh, in the United States alone, and then if you <laughs> add into that the magazine business in Europe, which we also have a really robust magazine business, which is the same thing, right? I mean, that's also a monthly business. And, you know, the amount of things that come through and we have to react to, um, you know, it's when you look back at Hasbro Publishing in 2006 with three people and you say, well, now it's, you know, now it's 15 if you include me, you know, that's a big jump, but it, we are not overstaffed by any means. You know, we, we, uh, we are putting in a lot of hours to make sure that these things get out on time and, and, uh, and that we're not, we're not the reason that a publisher gets held up. I'm going to imagine that a, an earlier uh, relationship like Hasbro and Marvel in the 1980s or early 90s involved so much paper in the mail and faxing, and that now I'm imagining your office or home office might be quite tidy, but your inbox or your 
your sort of uh, server uploads are exploding. <laughs> yes, yes, that is absolutely true. And you know, it's funny that you bring that up, Tim, because you know, I remember my first job in publishing for that kids book publisher. I was a rights assistant, so you know, when people would buy rights to our books, we would. You know, um, I was the person who helped get that going, and one of my jobs was duplicating film. Um, and I don't know if you guys have ever had the opportunity to see what a what a book what the what film used to look like back when we used film, but um, it was every color had a had this sheet of like um, this clear thick plastic. I can't remember what the name of it was, but um, the, the massive and these things were massive. They were like three feet by two feet, and you would get them, and and each book would have layers and layers of this film and it weighed a ton um and you know one of the things that i had to negotiate with my publishers back then was was the cost of duplicate film because they would need to get their own film to be able to produce the book and you know that could cost thousands of dollars because you're literally running off these 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 plastic sheets these transparent plastic sheets and um you know if you're familiar with the term black plate change which is when you know we change the text within a book that's because that was the one plate that you would you would change. Everything else would stay the same, but you'd move the text, which was the black plate. Um, you're you're that. talking about say the English version versus yeah, the French version. Exactly. All the, if right. it's the all same, the yep. if it's the same size, same trim, you can use all the same color plates, and yep. your black plate is going to get swapped out. Exactly. You can you can do the print run together and save money. Yeah, and it's funny because you know we still call it a black plate chain, but I haven't seen a black plate in twenty five <laughs> <now>, years. <laughs> now your now your your now your comics publisher is sending you a PDF with the with the lettering layer turned off. Exactly, and that you're sending exactly that right. to your foreign partner who's re-lettering it yep. in in French. Mm -hmm. So earlier you mentioned um, the brand team. Mm -hmm. How often, say, with the GI Joe brand team, how often are you interacting or having a sort of a formal meeting? Because I understand the schedules of comics, and uh, I sort of understand the schedules of, of toys. And currently, the G.I. Joe comic is not driven by the toy, uh, nor vice versa. But there, you are still, you and the brand team are still in Hasbro pushing the the brands, how often do you meet with or interact with the G.I. Joe brand team? Um, so we have two different teams now at Hasbro that work on um, on each brand. Um, so we have the, the toy team, which is the team that is dedicated to the creation of the, obviously the action figures, et cetera, right? So their job is, is the design, the... Um, specking the manufacturer all of that of the toys and then you know getting them out and ready for market and then there's what we call the franchise team each brand has a franchise team and they work very closely with the toy team but their their purview is basically everything else under the brand other than the toy right so whether it's entertainment or you know, the licensed products consumer products whether it's um you know any kind of storytelling digital gaming um publishing etc so for the most part it's the franchise team on the brand that I'm that I'm working with, and what I would say is, it depends. the inter The interactivity really depends on where we are in a story. So, if again, you know, if we're kicking something off and starting something new, um, if we're onboarding a new publisher, uh, I would say that 
you know, we're, we're working with the brand, with that franchise team, certainly weekly, um, sometimes more than that. Um, so a lot of involvement back and forth, making sure that although the comic stories or whatever story we're telling, you know, we do, to your point, tell our own version of the story, right? So we're not beholden to the toy. We're often not beholden to, um, to other forms of, of entertainment, but, um, but we still want to make sure that we are conveying a story that the franchise team feels is going to be beneficial overall to to the brand and and is going to hit on maybe some of the key themes that they that they feel uh, are important to the brand as we as we move forward so um so we we interact with them a lot and then as things start to get into a cadence and you know we the the major story arcs are are agreed upon and approved then you know their impl- their involvement tends to to diminish a bit because you know it, once we get into the storytelling phase and the actual details of manuscripts and and art panels um, they don't need to be as involved um, the one exception to that is when we are in fact tying into either a movie or a, a TV show uh, they tend to stay involved along with somebody from the studio just to make sure that we are um, you know just to make sure we're not accidentally spoiling something or going in a direction that um, that might confuse uh, people down the road because what, what we really want to obviously always avoid is is creating something that breaks with canon if we're if we're creating canon so um, so that involves a lot of people um, to make sure that we stay uh, as close as possible as we can um, within those confines so again you know certainly somebody from that brand team franchise team but also somebody from uh, from our studio. Hmm. And I guess one of the most visible things in the G.I. Joe world about that joining up of the different parts of Hasbro is that uh, you released this G.I. Joe classified novel from Kelly Scovron, uh, sort of the young adult novel. I guess that's that sort of in action, seeing the, the G.I. Joe sort of emerging brand of, of G.I. Joe classified meeting uh, publishing. Yeah, yes. Um, although, you know, I think what we wanted to achieve there really was sort of that recognition of the brand. But I think, you know, anybody who reads the G.I. Joe classified uh, novel, junior novel, if you will, or middle grade novel, um, you know, quickly realizes that it's not based on on those toys, but uh, on the toy line of, of G.I. Joe classified. But it is, you know, again, it is making sure that the nomenclature and the branding is is consistent so that, you know, if that kid loves that book, and wants to go out and find the action figures they're going to go and they're going to see oh you know these these are the characters um they you know they maybe they're they're adults now and they're grown up and this is their iteration in in other aspects of the joe world but um but yeah they they'll recognize gi joe classified as as a branding element and the the other thing that's that sort of strikes me is that the degree that particularly the the hammer books in recent years have have really kind of seeming to be like sort of in creative overload in terms of generating brand new G.I. Joe creations like um uh, like Overkill, the, the sort of robot's got a new design, or Sherlock, um, who was introduced in the Murder by Assassination mm-hmm. arc, and, and the sort of the big head, headliner really being Dawn, uh, the, the female Snake Eyes who who has been um so forefront in the in the books over the the last, ooh, however long it is, uh, <laughs> quite a n- number of years anyway. I mean, how how important do you think is it to the overall G.I. Joe 
brand that, that the comics uh, have got this kind of IP creation going on? And, and to what extent do you think some of these creations might filter into, into some of the other elements of the G.I. Joe brand outside of comics? You know, that it's, it's always difficult to know where something might lead in terms of it, it becoming part of, of other aspects of, of the brand, um, particularly on the toy side, because, you know, again, it's the overall cost of creating a new toy is so incredibly high that, um, you know, we, we obviously always have to be sure that whatever we create is, is going to sell and is going to sell in an amount that's going to earn back those remarkable R&D costs. So, you know, so I, I never I never like to think too too much about whether um, characters that are created in in the comics are 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 going to eventually become a toy. But on the other hand, it has happened. You know, um, Helix uh, was created in the comics, and um, you know, and she ended up. You know, she's had several action figures uh, of her, um, and she's appeared in in different. Um, she's been in digital gaming and and. Um, other aspects of the brand as well on the transformers side of course drift was a was a big comic um created character that now has had various iterations in toy and actually even was in one of the live action theatrical releases so uh, you never know and i think it's always really exciting but you know for me particularly with larry hama you know i i i've read certainly when i was starting out and and over the last few years and as we got closer and closer to 300 um you know reading about him in those early days and and you know people saying well what was your inspiration for this character and he's like well they you know they gave me a toy i had to figure out how to, <laughs> i had to yeah. figure out how to tell a story about this toy right and so you know i mean i i think that's amazing i think it's great and i think it's great that he did that uh and he was able to do that and i think you know for certainly for the early days of the brand that was terrific but um you know for me it's it's important for larry now to be able to kind of turn that on its head right and be like well it's not about them giving me a toy it's about me giving them a character and um you know i look at some of the characters that he's created and it's always you know i always appreciate his um he he comes at it from the perspective of what's the team missing you know what what makes sense in this case or this story, what character do I not have to pull from, from the ranks um, that needs to be created? And, you know, are, are, are there characters that are, uh, uh, or, or there, are there people who are underrepresented at the moment, you know? And so, you know, bringing in more, more women with really significant and important roles, um, you know, people of color, um, you know, I just, I love Molto. I thought he was a fantastic addition. And, you know, I understand that part of that was, um, some fans at like literally saying, you know, gosh, we, we'd love to see, um, you know, a Filipino Joe and, uh, and Lara's like, yeah, all right, I'm going to do that. That's, that's a great idea. So, you know, I mean, I think as, you know, again, it comes back to that trusting our creators and, and giving them the latitude to create the story that is meaningful to them because that's when the passion's going to come through. Right. You know, if you're sitting over their shoulder and dictating, you got to do this and you have to do that. And it has to look like this because, because I don't know, because that's what it looked like in 1980, or that's what the toy that's coming out next season is going to look like. You're just, you're taking away the key benefit of working with, with a creative source, right? I mean, you, you have to give them that freedom to create what they have in their heart and in their mind, 
or or you're just going to keep going in circles. And so, you know, when I look at these characters that Larry has created recently, I just I I love them. You know, I just think it's great. And you know, some again, there, there's probably people that aren't so happy about them for various reasons. And you know, I I'm sorry for that. But um, you know, again, I think it comes back to making sure that that GI Joe is still relevant and people are still reading these comics long after I, I am no longer the head of publishing, right? I mean, it's not about, it's not about the next year or the next two years. It's not about the last 15 years. It's about how are we going to keep people engaged? How are we going to bring new audiences in? And I think you do that by continuing to evolve the story and the characters. I think of a character like R.C. introduced in 1986 in the animated Transformers, the movie, and R.C. shows up in the next year of the TV cartoon and nowadays, characters in Transformers like R.C. and Windblade and uh, is it Minerva, they are a big part of the storytelling. And if you look sort of across the 30-year timeline, it's almost like R.C. was a seed that was planted in 1986 when the line wasn't ready, the market wasn't ready, and maybe some of the decision-making at Hasbro wasn't ready for, you know, a female Autobot. And you were taking this long view with, you know, what what might G.I. Joe be or benefit from or need in 20, 30, 40 years. And I think Mark and I might represent some of the fandom that is excited and impatient because we see Don Marino show up, get developed over a year or two, get a really cool costume. And Larry Hama said... I, I designed this character to be cosplayable, which I thought was a really amazing and astute uh, sort of like starting point, right? Like, yes, she's she's involved in the character. She's an ex-Cobra. She's a ninja. But so much of fan culture these days is that kind of expression, going to a convention and making a costume. Mm-hmm. And as, as, a, as sort of a, a, a comparison... You know, Marvel Comics introduces just as a, a one-shot character, this one comic book, you know, Gwen Stacy from another universe is Spider-Woman, right? So, quote, Spider-Gwen. Mm-hmm. And uh, Marvel is surprised when sort of between the character getting announced and the publication of the comic, people are making that costume and posting photos. And so the editors at Marvel say, oh, maybe we should make this character show up more, give her own series, right? And then she's in an animated movie. And... Almost overnight, this is a big deal character. And I look at Don Marino and sort of rubbing my hands together like, okay, when when's the action figure? Or when's the three-pack of like the new characters that Hama just introduced? And so uh, I hear you that, you know, you'd have to work in partnership with uh, the, uh, the, the, the two brand teams, uh, or the, was it the, the, the IP team and the, the, the brand team, the toy team? Um, but it might be that I just have to, in the way that, you know, RC as an Autobot really shows up in 86, but that kind of character sort of grows and blossoms 20, 30 years later. I might need to be patient that, you know, like, well, there might be a G.I. Joe movie in 25 years, and it's just all about Don Marino. And I can wait that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think to Tim, to your point that it's like, that's again, that's part of why. I feel so strongly about ensuring that we're bringing new people into the brand and and really 
broadening the the appeal and the accessibility of GI Joe to a new generation um, and to a broader audience because because that's how we get things like that, right? I mean, you know, it, I think a lot about um, Oldsmobile, the old car company, right? And um, you know, this was a when I went to business school, um, this was one of the cases that we studied and. You know, Oldsmobile, basically, they made decent cars and, you know, they had a very loyal fan base. And, you know, and and as things started to change and evolve, people kept saying, well, you know, Oldsmobile, you need to do this. And And then there are things like, no, we have a loyal fan base. Uh, We have a loyal customer. They like what we do. We do it really well. And we're going to keep doing it. And literally what happened was that their entire customer base died and they never replaced it. And now there's no such thing as Oldsmobile. Right. So, so I think about that a lot and it's, you know, it might sound kind of dramatic in some ways, but it's, you know, I don't ever want to be Oldsmobile and I certainly don't want GI Joe to ever be Oldsmobile, right? I want GI Joe to continue to grow and evolve and appeal to audiences. And I don't want to ever lose those core fans that have been with it from 1982 or, or earlier. But I also, I also need their help in making sure that they're bringing their, you know, their kids, their nephews and nieces, their, you know, friends, kids, whatever into this brand and and getting them excited and finding what that touch point is. And, you know, I think we sometimes we just have to be honest with ourselves that, you know, a a 10 year old kid right now is probably not going to be all that excited about the first 25 or 100 issues of the Marvel run of G.I. Joe Real American Hero. You know, um, they might get to that point, right? They might evolve into that point where they're in the brand and they love G.I. Joe and they're like, I want to really dig deep into this. And, oh, wow, look at this. There's all this stuff from the 80s and I'm going to get into that. And they, they'll eventually probably end up loving that as well. But we have to find places and opportunities to bring these new people in because as the brand grows and brings in more people and more people are excited about it, that's when we have you know, in a sense, the critical mass, if you will, for Don Moreno to become an action figure and a movie star. And, you know, that's when we start to see a broader encompassing of, of, of offerings, because, you know, again, you, we, we, you get to a point where it's like, well, everything's, everything's snake eyes, everything's Duke and Scarlet. And it's like, well, yeah, because those are, you know, we know that that's what people want, but if you get to the, if you get to the point where there's, there's a, a, bigger fan base and, and more uh, people excited in different parts of the brand, then you, you're going to get back to that point where, you know, you have a cast of, of thousands and you have, um, you know, you have all the, all the action figures and characters that you want to see either in digital gaming or movies or TV shows or toy, whatever it is. But, um, you know, but we need to keep growing. We need to keep, um, we need to keep this fan base vibrant and alive and, and growing. Neat. Yeah, the the sort of the big success story has been G.I. Joe classified, and I don't think anyone was expecting or ready for that to be as successful and as popular as it as it has been. And you you know some of the older collectors are going have have fallen in love with it. Some of them have been, you know, this isn't the G.I. Joe I knew from when I was little. But um, but I guess that's that's fine if it's if it's what's going to bring in the the newer collectors, uh, the the and the the kids. You know, it's the classifiers is is what my eleven uh, year old breaks out and plays on the on the his bedroom floor with. You know that that can only be a good thing to to sort of yeah energize 
GI Joe, bring bring back lapsed fans, bring in the uh, the new generation. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I because I've had some conversations at, at Comic Con and other places sometimes where you know somebody might be upset, a little you know heated maybe about about the direction that some things have gone in, and and you know it's like this isn't the Joe that I remember from the eighties, and and I you know I I appreciate that and I understand that feeling to a degree, but what I what I try to ask people to think about when they're thinking about brand and what it means to them is not I want this child or this young person who's interested potentially in Joe to have the exact experience that I had, but I want them to have the experience that I had insofar as this was the moment that I knew that I loved GI Joe and that I loved this brand and this story. And what is that touch point? What is that moment for a new fan? And it might not, it might not be the exact, it's not going to be probably the exact same experience that you had as your moment of, of, of experiencing. Like mine for GI Joe was when I, you know, that Christmas morning I got up and, and I had my first GI Joe figure under the tree and it was breaker. And I thought it was the most awesome thing ever uh, with his little headset and, (laughs) you know, and, you know, like what's that moment and, and envision that moment for, for that kid in your life, whether it's, you know, whether it's the kid down the street or your own child or your niece or nephew, whatever it is, you know, what is that moment that for them is going to be not exactly the same as what you had, but is going to elicit the same response and the same excitement and the same passion. And how do we create those moments for those new possible fans and make sure that they have the experience that you had maybe different, but emotionally and, you know, psychologically, I guess, that same experience of, aha, this is the brand for me. This is the story that I want to be a part of. Something I I need to remind myself occasionally if I look at G.I. Joe now and I think, well, this is different than, quote, my G.I. Joe from the 80s. All of us kids who came in the 80s were, were bringing in a, a G.I. Joe that was very different from the previous G.I. Joe. And there were there were fans and toy collectors from the 60s and 70s who looked at, wait, it's a team? Wait, they're, wait, they're small? Wait, the, the clothing isn't fabric. It's not changeable. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, wait, there's a show? I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, and so um, uh, Mark and I have talked about the sort of the word, the concept of, of custodian, that someone who's writing a comic book of a character or characters that have been around for a long time is a custodian of them. And when that person isn't writing that book in a year or 20, there will be someone else. And in a way, sort of we fans are in our fandom custodians. And there will there will be other fans after who, hopefully, who who have a different relationship and are interacting with different products and stories. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think we, we owe it to those fans. We owe it to those fans that haven't even been born yet to make sure that it's still here and it's still relevant when, when they're ready. Um, and I take that really, like, I take that very seriously. Um, you know, that is one of the driving impetuses behind my job um, is that belief to your point that, yes, we are custodians. This is, this is my brief time on this brand, on this book, to guide this in a way that, you know, I think is the right way um, for the broadest possible fans base. Um, and, you know, 
people can disagree with that. Sometimes I might be, sometimes I'll be wrong. Sometimes I, I'll be right. A lot of times it'll be somewhere in between, but, um, you know, it is, it's that, it's that real dedication to something that existed before I was born and, you know, shame on me if it's not still here when I'm gone. Hmm. If we can return to, to a point that, that you sort of brought up a little bit earlier, you said that, you know, when looking at, at maybe some forums or, or whatever, fans are discussing the comic and, and there's things that, that maybe uh, they don't agree with and you go, okay, maybe that isn't the writer, maybe that's me. Is there is there any particular examples that you, you can bring to mind of, of maybe some of the uh, sort of the, the direction that you've influenced in in the books. If there's anything specific that that sort of comes to mind, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's basically any time it's <laughs> it's kind of any time it's not um, a real American hero. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I guess you know, specific. I think you know one of one of the projects that I was the most excited about recently was Paul Aller's run on Joe. Um, and, you know, that really came, uh, the, the underlying concept of that um, w- was something that I had come up with. And, um, you know, the execution by Paul was certainly vastly superior to my initial idea. But the idea basically that the Joe team, instead of being this, you know, highly trained, highly financed special operations force of, of one of the most powerful and wealthiest nations on earth, is actually just a kind of a ragtag bunch of, of resistance fighters. Um, and, you know, basing it a lot on, on what I've learned about um, the, the British special operations executive during World War II, which was civilians that were recruited basically to be spies, saboteurs, uh, even assassins at times. Um, and they were just, you know, these normal, everyday people who were put into extraordinary situations and, and performed beyond expectations and you know the the soe was actually the only british armed force armed forces segment that was um that was integrated with both women and men in the field doing actual um operations and um you know i i just loved that idea of of ordinary people doing extraordinary things and and i think that that's such an important part of the gi joe brand and and so i wanted to capture that and i think you know i think that Paul did an amazing job pulling in that idea of, you know, Cobra has won, Cobra has taken over, G.I. Joe is, you know, is literally just, it's a, you know, there are some obviously that are ex-military or, um, and, and have that kind of combat training, but, you know, they're bringing in people who are, are simply civilians that are fed up and, and, you know, don't want to live under occupation and, and are willing to fight back for, for their freedom and what they believe in. And, um, you know, I think there was a, there was a fair amount of, of pushback on, on that story. Um, you know, and, and, and I, again, I, I get, I get it. I understand that there are, there are people for whom the brand really needs to stay within certain parameters. And, you know, I, I come back to what I say is what I try to do is always make sure that I have something for everybody. Right. So that, you know, Larry Hama continues to write, real American hero. Um, and, and as far as I'm concerned, as long as he wants to keep writing it, he'll, he'll keep writing it. And, um, you know, so I, what I always want to do is to make sure that I'm providing as best as I can that part of the brand that those core fans really want and that they really love and it's important to them. And I want to make sure that they always have that. I guess what I just, I, I sort of ask is that 
if you don't like something else, you know, you, you don't have to, you don't even have to give it a chance, but you know, maybe just let other people enjoy it and, and, mm -hmm. um, and, and come into the brand that way, because, you know, my goal is to continue to give the hardcore fans and the longtime fans from the eighties, um, as much as possible what they want. Um, but again, like I said before, it's, it's my job to ensure that that audience continues to grow and, um, and increase over time. This is, this is a key point, and I made this once on my blog, where one of the things that's so exciting to me about G.I. Joe now and in the last decade plus is that in the 80s, though the continuity of the story of the comic book, the TV cartoon, and the, the action figures, if you're counting the story of the file card dossiers, those were all different, but it was all basically the same G.I. Joe. It wasn't like there was this other G.I. Joe over there, like the the World on Fire story that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I looked with a lot of longing at other brands, like Transformers, where, you know, at any one time, Transformers has three or four different takes, different continuities, different sort of uh, age groupings, right? There's the movies, which have a particular feel and a very particular look. And there are, you know, quote, legends or quote, classics toys, which are for a certain group or two. There's something for three-year-olds. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a comic book that may be very specifically at, you know, like the 1990 crowd. And uh, for a long time, G.I. Joe could only have one of these at a time. And maybe it was Real American Hero, or maybe it was something, you know, maybe d during a year of a, of a live action movie, you could have two, maybe three, right? There was the, the action figures, there was Real American Hero, there was Resolute, and there was, a, or, or a Renegades, and then there's a live action film. And that's, that's really, you know, for a moment, we had several. And so uh, I would agree with you and also ask fans, like, okay, hey, the, the World on Fire series isn't replacing Larry Hama's Real American Hero series. And fans, if you also buy the World on Fire series, that actually only helps the Real American Hero series. And not buying it, I mean, comics are expensive, and if, you've, if, you've, if you're on a budget, I get it. But not buying sort of as a protest the World on Fire series or the World on Fire collection, that does send a, a particular message and in a way sort of a a harsh message. I don't. I don't want it to sound like I'm trying to blackmail fans. Like you ought to support GI <laughs> Joe, so GI Joe's still around. But we all have to support GI Joe, so GI Joe's still around, right? Like you know, Transformers doesn't need as much of my help because you know Transformers is doing great in all sorts of territories and in all sorts of expressions. And you know, I'm always I'm always looking for more people to you know read GI Joe and buy GI Joe and watch GI Joe. I had a very specific question now. I think about um, the, the the comic, the the Aira comic. There was a sort of a subplot where there was there was a secret bit of the pit that was unveiled, and there was this giant eye, and there was some robots under tarp tarpaulins. And in the comic books, it, it was kind of revealed that uh, it, in in the in the letter pages, it was hinted at that there was a plan to have a Transformers crossover of some some sort, which didn't happen, and, and so the sort of story went off in a different direction and and not long afterwards there was revolution and the hasbro uh, universe launched are you able to to talk to to that kind of plot development uh, and and how the kind of the the hasbro verse came about uh, michael 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that there's the the Hasbro universe is something that still intrigues me um, because I think, you know, I think it's something that you don't want to push too far. But at the same on the same token, I think there's a history of it, particularly between G.I. Joe and Transformers, um, obviously going all the way back to the 80s. So, you know, I think it's it's important to to think about what makes sense in in a world that's going to be a shared universe versus something that's kind of got to be forced together and and cobbled together where maybe it doesn't make as much sense. But, you know, the the initial plan back um, when Revolution came out was that um, there was going to be a a bigger push around Hasbro Universe at that time. One of the things that we tend to do in publishing as well is, you know, is, is a bit of test and learn, I guess, if you will, or, um, you know, I don't want to say market research because it's not as as cold as that because, you know, we are obviously telling stories and, and we're engaged in those stories. But um, but it is sort of a what would happen if we were to explore this, you know, without investing the literally hundreds of millions of dollars that have to go into a, a theatrical production or, or even a TV show, right? So, you know, that ability to to float an idea, to test some things out, to see how things interact, is something that we can do in, in comics. And I, and I enjoy doing, you know, I think that's a, it's one of the things that again, makes it exciting because it's almost a, it's a, what if, you know, as opposed to, you know, this is, this is what we're establishing and, you know, love it or leave it kind of a, of a mentality. It's more of a, what if this happened and, and what would it look like and, and will fans enjoy it? And, and so that's, you know, that's really how that came about was, was this sort of broader idea of, of do we have an opportunity here as an organization and can we test it out um, with IDW and, and the publishing? And I, you know, I think that the the story was interesting. We we definitely tried to ensure that the brands that we were using fit, you know, in a logical sense, right? You know, I mean, um, does does mask make sense in the trans in a world where transformers exist? I, you know, I think it does because it's it's you know it's it's kind of um, reverse engineering technology from Cybertron into into an Earth-based concept. Um, does, you know, does Micronauts work? Um, it does from a science fiction standpoint. Um, and I think that there's certainly an opportunity there too. But, um, you know, again, I, it's really about how, how fast and how quickly do you want to go um, in terms of those stories. But, you know, what I, I come back to the fact that I think, you know, G.I. Joe and Transformers they can easily coexist and and it's it's a it's a coexistence that i think makes perfect sense in a lot of ways and uh you know i think it it's ripe for storytelling at any given time i think it's it's fun to to put those two brands together at different times and and explore stories um of 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 that sort of amazing dichotomy of, of these 30 40 foot transforming robots from another planet um versus a group of highly trained specialists, um, you know, of uh, Earth's fighting force. But, you know, again, I think it comes back to that idea of, you know, what's the relevance of, of G.I. Joe in a world where there's these giant robots. But um, again, coming back to that concept of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, it's not much more extraordinary than when you're when you're working with with Transformers. Um, so I, I just think it's I think it's fun. Um, I think there's a long history of it within both brands, um, and I, I'd love to keep telling stories along those lines when when it's appropriate. I know the market has decided, but as the Hasbroverse was running, 
building up to Revolution and then to First Strike. I had a great time reading all those books. But I will admit, since I own a comic book store, it is easier for me to read all of those comics than some of some of our customers who who might be on more of a budget. Yeah, and I think you know that's that's that, I think that's a great lesson learned too. And you know, like I said, it is it is sometimes it's it's a learning experience, and you know you do you do have to be really cognizant of of how much people can invest in in the project and in and in your brands. Um, and I think that was you know that's a that's a that's a valuable learning that you, you sometimes you you just can't expect people to be buying ten books a month. Um, especially at, at three ninety nine, four ninety nine a book these days. Um, but if Real American Hero were to be weekly, with some side <laughs> miniseries and specials, I think you might be surprised how many Real American Hero readers could go close to ten books a month. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think you know one of the things that I think is always fun too is um, you know in terms of the idea of shared universes is not necessarily you know big crossovers all the time, but just just like fun little fun things like. Um, you know, having a having a Joe character like on a Saturday afternoon at a barbecue wearing wearing the concert T-shirt that he or she got at the Gem and the Holograms concert, you know, <laughs> that weekend. You know, it's just like it, it's like a little Easter egg for those who get it. But I mean, you know, does that mean that we've now got a combined universe with G.I. Joe and Gem and the Holograms? No, but it means that, you know, you can imagine that they exist in the same world and why not? So I think there's just fun things that you can do within the confines of a book that uh, that can kind of have some fun with those notions. Yeah, there's also uh, an example like the two Transformers, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic crossover miniseries yeah. where those yeah. are uh, those are it's it's the 1984 animated Transformers and the 2000s Friendship is Magic universe. And each issue is two short stories and. It's aimed at a younger reader, although lots of older readers read Friendship is Magic. Mm-hmm. And if, if you want your Transformers to be more continuity heavy or gritty, you can skip that. But that's also a good book to show to younger readers because it's really friendly and not too gritty. Yep. A thought occurred to me as I was talking about that storyline with the giant eye that, that potentially was hinting at the Transformers joining the ARI universe, but, but didn't. But that storyline did eventually lead to the death of snake eyes how contentious was uh, was that an issue with um hasbro publishing you know that was <laughs> um anytime we want to um go down the path of of killing off a main character in in the comics um it does tend to be a eye-opening conversation at hasbro to be sure <laughs> um and i think you know again part of it is sort of the miracle of comics where you know, you can be dead and then, oh my gosh, you're, you weren't actually dead. You're back. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think that, you know, it's part of it is, is explaining to, um, to people who aren't familiar with the comic medium and the, and the, and the sort of ins and outs of the, of the genre of, of like, well, listen, it, it's comic book dead, you know? So <laughs> if, if it doesn't go well, or if you get really upset, we can, we'll, we'll, figure out how to bring him back in a really dramatic and exciting way. But, um, but you know, at, on the same time, I think it's, it's important to, to keep people guessing and to really not have too many sacred cows because, um, you know, again, if you, if you go into a story and you know that all the good guys are always going to come out all right at the end and the bad guys are always going to get their righteous comeuppance, then that's a boring, that's a dull story, right? I mean, you can do that for 
six issues, maybe, maybe 12 if you're lucky. But I think, you know, the idea that your favorite characters aren't necessarily safe, that's an Mm. important, that's an important message to give. And I think, you know, it, it just, it ups the stakes. It makes it more realistic in a way. And, you know, I always, I do struggle a bit with that line between making things realistic, having good, good solid stakes that are, you know, that are anxiety inducing and, and, um, and drama producing, but, um, but at the same time, not getting to the point where it's so gritty that it's going to turn off a part of the audience that really isn't up for that and didn't come to the brand for that. And, you know, I think one of the things that's important to me about GI Joe is that they genuinely be heroes, right? That they, they are doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, do they sometimes have to use means that they would prefer not to? Yeah, of course. You know, that's that's the way things happen in, in the real world. But, you know, I don't I don't want to project G.I. Joe as a whole as characters who will do whatever is necessary to achieve their ends. Right. I mean, I want them to be heroic. I want them to be aspirational. And I think, you know, I think the world needs that um, to an extent. I think we we want heroes that we can not only look up to, but that we could actually emulate in in some ways, right? I mean, I think the thing that I've always loved about the G.I. Joe brand and team and story is that, you know, you don't, you don't have to be from outer space. You don't have to have been bitten by a radioactive bug. You don't have to, (laughs) you don't have to be a mutant or anything like that. You, you just have to use the gifts that you have, right? Your intelligence, your physical stamina, your determination, um, your courage, you know, those things that we all of us have in different measure, that's what it, that's what it takes to be a Joe, right? And that's all that it takes to be a Joe. And I think that's a, that's a great story. And the more that we can emphasize that, I think the more it makes the brand really relevant um, to, to a broad audience. I like the point that you made about sort of keeping us second guessing, keeping the audience on its toes with the death and potential return of Snake Eyes, because having just read issue 300, and uh, spoilers here for anyone who's not, uh, we sort of do see the return of at least a Snake Eyes. And reading the issue and looking forward to the next one, I genuinely don't know, is this going to be the new status quo? Snake Eyes is is back in, in close to his original form, or is he going to die in the next issue? <laughs> <laughs> it could be that at this point. Yeah, Mark Mark and I have talked a lot over the last year and with a couple you know guests on our podcast about what would happen and I was wrong. I was certain Snake Eyes would not a Snake Eyes would not come back in 300 and uh I know plans can change uh over the course of a year and maybe an earlier plan was Snake Eyes is definitely not coming back. And I was I was sort of Pleasantly, I mean, I, th- I think I think I chuckled out loud, and my wife said, "What is it?" And I said, "They brought him back." <laughs> I they, I was sure they wouldn't. I I said so last week on the podcast. I guess I'm wrong. I'm eating my hat. <laughs> you know, and even separate from sort of you know comic book death, you know, GI Joe has a has a has a history with with this with characters you know leaving this mortal coil and returning, uh, going back to the Marvel run. Um, Mark, did you want to ask about the the Nerf variant cover since for a moment we're on issue 300? Um, I think you've almost asked the question, Tim. Uh, yeah, we've got, we've got this strange 
we've got this strange variant cover with uh, you know some wonderful art by Dave Johnson. Uh, when, when Mike when 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 Mark says strange, he also means awesome. He just means he means uh, surprising and unusual. Yes, thank you, Tim. We are not at all offended by this cover. <laughs> Uh, how did that how did that come about whose idea how who worked with who uh so that was um the nerf and gi joe toy team were doing um the the blaster that the nerf team came out with which is the gi joe um anniversary themed blaster and they came to me about uh maybe nine months ago i guess and said you know we'd love to put a comic in with with this gi joe blaster and you know is there is there anything that we could do? And, you know, I, it was kind of funny because I was like, well, when are you going to announce it? And the timing was just so perfect. I was like, well, why don't we put the 300th issue in there? Because that's a huge milestone um, for any comic. And, you know, it'll be, it'll be relevant to the team that, um, I mean, to the fans that are going to probably be interested in this, in this uh, Nerf blaster in particular. And for those who, you know, are coming at it more from the Nerf side and less on the G.I. Joe side because they want to own own that particular blaster. It's going to give them a, you know, a, a fun story that's also, you know, a, a, a kind of a collectible, collector's item in its own in its own mm. right because it's the 300th issue. And, you know, and then the idea was like, well, how can we customize it? And we went back and forth on a few ideas. And, and then I, I just said, you know, well, why don't we use the iconic issue number one cover but just adapt it so that they're using they're all carrying nerf blasters instead of um instead of firearms and um and i you know i think it was just it was meant to be kind of that both a bit of a a homage but also a bit tongue-in-cheek just in in Mm -hmm. terms of having some fun with with that design and um and so that's it so the you know the interiors are exactly the same um as issue 300 but um that is that that the only place you can get that cover is is with the Nerf Blaster. Is, uh, there's my cat. Um, uh, um, okay, so packing a comic into a toy package is a different, uh, the, the comic book is public, is printed um, in Korea, I think. And uh, so there are some different steps in getting this comic book into this toy package because the toy package and the toy are made somewhere in particular but that's out of your purview right you you're sort of involved in the initial sort of definition of it right yeah um and in this case um we actually hasbro's printing themselves um so what we did was we had idw give us the files uh-huh. and um to basically to fix that logistical issue that you just mentioned tim um okay we we will um, hasbro will print themselves and then just um, pack it in so we have had situations in the past where where our comic book publisher publish uh, prints the comics and then ships them and then they have to get packed in and you know it works um we've certainly done it that way quite a few times but um but it is a few extra steps and you know people are really kind of sitting on the edge of their seats until the last minute because if anything disrupts the the flow of those supply chains then you know you can miss you can miss a lot of dates so you know in, in a case like this i think it was uh it was good move to to print on our own and, and mm. do that so so uh so sort of just looking at looking ahead to to 2023 you've you've said that you you 
uh, you're not going to give Talking Joe the scoop on who the, <laughs> the new publisher is. <laughs> we don't have that um, privilege. But um, there, there, there is a few things on public record. I, I listened to your very interesting interview with uh, Adventures in Collecting podcast mm. the other day, mm -hmm. uh, where you went into the details of the the Stop the Bleed campaign for issue uh, three hundred. So, so maybe just for the purposes of people who, who haven't yet listened to to that, can you kind of let us let us know uh, what is sort of public knowledge about the the future of GI Joe comics beyond November twenty twenty two? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean. We obviously, we, well, I guess I shouldn't say obviously, we have a plan um, <laughs> and the plan is, is already in motion. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard Larry say, and, I, and I've said it as well, that, um, you know, that 301 has been submitted um, and, um, and reviewed. And I know that Larry is already working on 302. What I would say to readers and fans is patience is going to be required for a bit of time because um, it's, it's not going to be January. Um, it's going to be a little bit later on, um, in the year before we start seeing anything, um, um, come out, but, um, but it's all built, um, it's all in motion. Um, we do have, I, I've, it's funny. I sometimes see on, on, you know, the, the various boards, like I, I, the other day, I think I saw somebody on his tank say, um, I think maybe Hasbro blew it and they don't, you know, they don't even have a new publisher. <laughs> I, I, I can assure you we do. We do have a new publisher. Uh, we are working very closely with, with that team. Um, and we are, we're basically we're full steam ahead. But, um, but the plan is that um, it's going to be, it's going to be a little while. So, um, and I think that's normal, you know, I, I think that's, that's fairly normal. If, um, if you look back to any big transitions, it does mm -hmm. take a little time to get a new team up to speed and to sort of figure out what we're doing. And, and what exactly we want to want to come out with when when the time is right. So, but um, but not to fear. Um, they're they're certainly, like I said, GI Joe's not gonna go away, at least <laughs> while while I'm <laughs> while I'm the head of Hasbro Publishing. I I can speak for myself here. I I, I had some patience between 1994 and 2001. Yes, right. And then I had I had some patience between part of 2008 end part of 2008 when publishers change <laughs> i you know some months into next year i can wait yep yep i've got yep. issues to reread they want to find out what happens to that c-130 though <laughs> <laughs> uh that's the other time that i sort of chuckled out loud and i explained to my wife oh it's a cliffhanger <laughs> and she said oh they did it didn't end and i said I thought it was going to end. I think we all thought it was going to end, <laughs> and then, and then you know start up again. But no, the no the final thing it says it says to be continued. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's it's funny. I know that I know that there are people who are disappointed in that, and I think and I'm hoping that part of their disappointment is they they aren't aware yet that there actually will be a to be continued, and that that's all going to you know we we will get to where we are picking that back up and you will find out what happens to the C-130, etc. So, um, so all, you know, be, yeah, be, be assured that that's all going to happen. But, um, you know, I, I, it, it is funny too, because, you know, there was a time when you're, you're just in this kind you know, certainly in this business, you're just not sure. And so, you know, talking to Larry, you know, the original plan was, yeah, we're going to wrap it up and we're going to end it because we don't, 
we don't really know if the new publisher is going to want to continue it or if there's going to be a new but then you know had some conversations with with them and there's there's i think there's just always this an interest in in keeping real american hero alive because it you know it is so core to the brand and it is such an important story overall and and the idea of of Larry still writing it, I think I, I just I just love it because it's you know here's here's Larry who's been on this book since 1982. You know it's really is his. He's he said you know GI Joe is it's like coming home and you know like I I just I love the fact that he's going to keep writing that. Um, and you know again you have to wait a little bit of time, but um, it's going to happen. So you know the the. For those who were hoping for a big, you know, resolution and end of the story, I guess I would just say maybe at issue 400. <laughs> <laughs> you made the, you made, you know, we've been talking on the, on the show a lot about 300, what a milestone, you know, what's, what's, what's going to happen in, in it and what's going to be the grand conclusion. Not quite suspecting, uh, not quite suspecting that it's, it's just going to be a con- to be continued dot 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 but you made the excellent observation of n- not just for gi joe 300 being such a milestone but for comics in in general for a single writer to have such a long legacy on a book is so so rare first for someone to be working on a single story for such a long time but also a single story with an unbroken numbering um right there are very so very few examples of creators doing that it's it's something quite um uh, yeah quite a landmark cool i've i had one question which um, might be a little bit too specific so michael so so feel free to decline to um uh, answer but um in uh sort of looking at you know on on facebook and sort of the interactions from people asking questions about geojo comics and stuff there's always people coming new to the brand or or coming back from being a long way around and at the at the moment the 300 issue history of it is sort of it sort of it's not necessarily the easiest thing to navigate particularly because uh so many of the the books have, have now become out of print is is that something on on your radar do you think of how um how to make that legacy of the the comics accessible to to sort of people discovering it new or coming back to it yeah, one of the things that we always do, um, because you know Hasbro owns the copyrights and the trademarks, obviously, to all of these these stories and these comics. So the good thing about that is that um, we can transfer those over to the new publisher. So the idea of you know down the road, um, you know maybe twenty four or twenty five, um, having compendiums of of the of the full Marvel run the um, reprinted and, and brought back to market, um, certainly available digitally as well for those who, who like to read on devices rather than physical copies. Um, that will all be open to us. Um, so that, that opportunity is, is always, is always available to the publisher, whoever they might be. So it's not, it's not like, oh, well, anything that IDW did, we can't use that anymore Mm -hmm. or anything that Marvel did, we can't. Um, that all just it, it it all belongs to Hasbro. So we'll figure you know we'll figure out what the what the right way to re-release that content is. But it certainly it's always going to be part of of a broader plan in terms of keeping that material accessible to to fans. Excellent. Sounds like good news for for people with holes in their back issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I, th- I think we've been talking to you a long time <laughs> and, and yeah. we, war- we warned you that we were talkers so so ho- hopefully we've not kept you from something uh, important but um thank you so much for being so generous with your your time it's uh yeah it's been truly um yeah really interesting to to sort of get the uh get your lens on on this because it's not really something that I've seen a, a huge amount of bit before sort of the um sort of the the, the Hasbro side of the, the GI Joe publishing story so um yeah really interesting Tim did you have any last thoughts comments thank you so much for sharing your time and answering our questions Michael yeah it's been my pleasure and I you know I really appreciate you giving me the time um you know to your point it's not uh it's not often that I get asked um, my perspective on on these things, and it's it's you know it's it's fun. It's fun to talk about it because it's obviously it's a big part of my life and something I'm really passionate about. And I think um, a lot of times people think of Hasbro just as you know the suits, I guess you know the corporate entity that owns mm. the brands, but um, but it's really not the case. I mean, there's a lot of people at Hasbro who love these brands and are passionate about them, and we come in every day trying to figure out how to make our fans excited and happy about the next thing so um you know it's, it's it was great talking to you guys i appreciate the time excellent excellent and uh definitely looking forward to uh whatever news comes out in the hopefully not too distant future but some point <laughs> some point other side of christmas <laughs> excellent yeah great okay tim that was great Nice to have uh, Michael come on and tell us all about the behind the scenes of Hasbro, uh, how this thing gets made. This was exciting because I got to speak with Michael Kelly at HasCon several years ago, and I have bumped into him two other times at uh, comic book conventions. And you know, when you bump into someone at a convention, you don't necessarily feel like you can uh, monopolize them for almost two hours. So... <laughs> and if you do bad form <laughs> what, what an opportunity on this part po- on this podcast and what a scoop larry hammer definitely writing uh era until issue 400 at least <laughs> fantastic so tim where can people find you when you are not talking to vps of major uh corporations um Video essays on television and film at Atomic Abe. My comic book store is Hub Comics in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Excellent. And if you are new to Talking Joe, you can find out all about us at our website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk, which has links to all of our social media, like our Facebook group, Twitter, Instagram, and all of that good stuff. You can also join in the fun as a Patreon, patreon.com slash Talking Joe. Um, and you can join all of the cool kids like Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, and Brian, who are all getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. So I think uh, that is us done, which leaves us only to remind people that... Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! We should have asked Michael to sing with us, really, but um, (laughs) I thought that might be pushing it.